Hi, I'm your host, Aaron, and welcome to the First Generations Podcast, the show where we dive into the personal experience and knowledge of individuals that pave their path to success on their own terms. From entrepreneurs, professionals, and beyond, we will learn what it takes to walk through their journey and what it means to be first generation. Coming up in this episode... It's that mental presence. They, there's a, they talk about the flow state as well. And part of the flow state is being deep in that present moment okay. of feeling like time floats away. That requires you're here. You can't yes. be thinking about what you're going to do 10 years from now and be in a flow state. It, that, that just, it does not compute. Welcome to the First Generations Podcast. Today's guest is an agile and happiness expert rooted in four decades of software development, coaching style leadership, and personal coaching at Fortune 500 companies, midsize, and startups. She provides coaching and consulting to global professionals and teams, challenging them to create personal joy, a culture of joy and business agility to see increases to product creativity, team engagement, customer satisfaction, and return on investment. She currently resides in Portugal and is an international global speaker on the quest for deep joy, the heart and soul of Agile, and why deep joy matters in the workplace, along with other related topics. Short versions are available on her YouTube channel in her Joy Matters series. In addition, she's writing her own stories on the rocky road to joy. Another one of her programs, The Quest for Deep Joy, is also available online. I am honored to present you our guest for today, Theen Sheehy. Hi, Theen. How are you doing? I'm fine, Aaron. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and honor to have you on our show. And I guess to start, first start things off, during our times, what is one thing you're most grateful for in this moment? Ah, the time of the pandemic. <laughs> for me, I think the, the thing at the top of the list is technology. The, the fact that I live in a city that has, in a country that has great fiber, gives me the ability to actually work online with a world of people, regardless of the pandemic. So I recently took a, real, uh, a full-time role as an agile coach with a software company that is both American and Portuguese. And because of the pandemic, they have moved to a fully remote way of working. And so between the technology and the job, I have access to everybody I need and I'm enjoying life. And the fact that I can't really leave the apartment or leave my city isn't, isn't an issue. That's great to hear. And I can attest that for myself too. Technology is definitely one of the things I'm most grateful for as well. I can't imagine being stuck at home. Well, I guess you could be stuck at home without technology, but I think things would be very different in our day and age right now, especially growing up with it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Your name, Theen. I've never heard of this name before, and I believe this is a very unique name. So does the name Theen have a very specific meaning to you or like your parents, or is there like a reason why they named you after that? Yeah. So my dad chose that name when he was young, before he even married my mother. It was the name of a girl who was the heroine in a post-apocalyptic short story that was written in the 1950s in the U.S. Okay. And so there were two factions of people after the apocalypse. Thane turned out to be the leader, the woman leader of one of those two groups. And I think that that captured his heart in what he hoped for his oldest daughter. I, I'm his oldest he was in training to be a minister. And so he was very active in languages, right? So he knew Greek and Hebrew and Latin and things like that. And so this name, I believe, because of the nature of the short story, is probably aligned to the Greek goddess Athena. Okay. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. Yeah. So it's not said in the short story, but that's always the way I've sort of 
figured out where that name came from. And I once met a woman named Athena and her nickname was Thene. So it seemed to make sense to me that that's probably where that short name came from. I see. I see. Okay. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a cool story. It's a cool story. My mom got to name my other two sisters. My dad got to name me. Okay. And are your other two sisters also happen to have like some sort of resemblance to Greek goddesses? <laughs> Uh, no, nope. <laughs> they do have creative names. Yeah. Um, they're not, not standard American names, but they're not quite like this. Hey, it stands out and it's memorable, right? <laughs> it, it is. It is. On Judgment Day, there's supposed to only be one of me. So I, I, have to, I have to account for my accomplishments in life. You mentioned like you and your husband currently reside in Portugal. And this was a move made recently, I believe, two years ago, two and a half to three years ago. I believe you had an abundant amount of success in the corporate world in America with a multitude of achievements and accomplishments. So I'm curious, what triggered the decision for you and your husband to leave all this behind and to move specifically to Portugal and not any other country? Yeah, so we started to think about where did we want to live in retirement? And we decided we didn't want to wait that long to actually ex go through that experience because it's difficult. Right? Moving somewhere abroad, taking on a new language, taking on a new culture when you don't know the language. There's lots of challenges, ups and downs and frustrations that go with all of that experience. So waiting till we were older would have been harder. So we decided to do it a bit early. For us, I think our U.S. experience, not for everybody, but our experience was becoming a little too, the cost of living was going up, the materialism, just by nature of the American cycle of life, materialism was too much. We really wanted to scale back and scale down. We wanted a, a different pace of life, which is more, was a slower pace of life that was really more about enjoying life rather than just chasing money, chasing job, chasing career, whatever. Mm. Um, so we, we actually went on a, a several vacations in different places, not only Portugal, looking for where that might, we might find that. We tried a couple of different countries, got a recommendation to look at Portugal and came here almost three years ago now to check it out and really enjoyed it and knew that because we were really fascinated with traveling around Europe, that Portugal was going to be the best launch pad for short travel hops around Europe, completely not knowing, of course, that COVID was going to hit and <laughs> nobody could travel anywhere. So we haven't been able to realize that part of the dream yet. But Portugal's quite a friendly country for expats coming in. The visa process isn't too difficult. It's frustrating. There's plenty of red tape, but it's better off than some of the other European countries or South American countries to choose from. So okay. it's a good choice for us. Ah, nice. So what's one of your favorite parts of living in Portugal or perks of living in Portugal? So one of the perks is, is the cost of living. So yeah. it's a much lower cost of living. It is not a credit card society very much a cash-driven society. So that makes us, it forces us to make that decision about choices and to not overextend ourselves and to stay within that credit-free way of life. So we've really enjoyed that part. The people are super patient and super friendly. We chose to live in the third largest city, which means we have some access to people who speak English, but yeah. not, not as much maybe as Lisbon or Porto, where many, many more people speak English, or in the Algarve down south, where, where many more people speak English. So we wanted to choose a place that was enough historically, culturally Portuguese, and generally the north of Portugal is like that. So we've enjoyed, well, 
some days it's very frustrating trying to learn Portuguese, but we've sort of enjoyed that it's the challenges here and the challenges in front of us. And we, we are sort of forced to practice Portuguese every day. Okay. So speaking Portuguese and the language, what is one of the biggest challenges that you and your husband find when it comes to learning Portuguese? Well, the Portuguese language has some sounds in it that just do not exist in English. There's A's and E's with accent marks and A's and O's and E's with tildes at the top that involves nasal sounds that the American face is not used to making. So so sounding like a native is tricky. Generally, it's a romance language. So if you have any French or Italian, Spanish kind of background, it's not, not too hard to understand the construction of the sentences. And it's not too hard to read because it looks a lot like Spanish, but it does not sound that way. No, definitely so, not. <laughs> it's uh, it's interesting. Some people say it sounds kind of Russian because there's a lot of shushes okay. to the sound. Oh, that's interesting. So it's not Russian. There's nothing Russian about it, but it, to our English American ears, it can kind of sound that way. Yeah, that's good to know. Now, moving on, I'm very interested with your coaching platform, Green Hat Coaching and Consulting. And I believe the green hat is a reference from Edward de Bono's Six Thinking Hat System. It is. Now, for our listeners, this is a system of six different colored hats in which the underlying principle is a challenge of brain to think in six different directions. For each of these directions, the brain will identify and bring conscious thought of certain aspects of issues being considered. For example, again, for our listeners, there's six different colored hats. There's the white hat, and when someone's putting on the white hat, just trying to promote neutral and objective thinking. You know, you want to be concerned with data, facts, figures, and information. There's also the red hat, which is the also known as the emotional hat. And this is like the more intuitive view. You have, it kind of refers to like the gut feeling and your hunches. Next, we have the yellow hat, which is the benefit hat, and that's the optimistic, sunny, positive, and, you know, very hopeful and joyful or joyous hat. And the fourth hat we have is the green hat, which represents ideas. Now, with green hat coaching, you have it's associated with energy, fertility, growth, creativity, and new ideas. And it switches around the normal superiority of the black hat. Now, the next we have is the black hat, which is the judgment hat, and... This is more so associated with being careful and cautious and, you know, obviously being judgmental. And lastly, we have the blue hat, which is the planning hat. And this is the organizing hat, which controls the use of the other hats. Now, after this brief explanation of the six thinking hats, I wanted to ask you, what made you adopt the system of thinking? Why the green hat for your coaching business? So the green hat coaching and consulting business was created here in Portugal when we first arrived about two years ago now. And my original intent to create this company was to create a coaching and consulting company around creativity and innovation for business. It morphed really over that first year. And about a year ago, I sort of switched to thinking more about deep joy coaching and leadership coaching. However, creativity and innovation are still a part of all of that. So De Bono's model is a way of problem solving. And it's not just a way of each person having all six hats, but it's also a way of encouraging a team to have people in it who at any point in time can think in any one of those six ways, right? So it's a team thinking model. Okay. So I wanted to originally create Green Hat to be a company that would not only provide 
creative and innovative ideas, but would teach people how to increase their creativity and how teams could increase their innovation through various games and exercises and tips and techniques and things like that. So that's where the green hat came from. Ah, okay. That makes a lot of sense then. Now, with the coaching business and new projects, one of your areas of expertise is on the topic and focus on deep joy. And I believe a lot of your work stems from this topic. So first off, I noticed you put a lot of emphasis on the term joy instead of using the word happiness. Now, is there a reason for this? Absolutely. Absolutely. So happiness is a word that is often used as an emotion, okay. a, passing, a passing emotion uh, that is often driven by external factors in our life right? I'm happy because I just got married. I'm happy because it, the sun is shining today. I'm happy because I just got ice cream. My intention of choosing this word of joy and, and specifically deep joy was I wanted to create a phrase that would encompass purpose-driven, internally driven, internally managed, what's called intrinsic motivation to manage my happiness, to manage my joy on a day-by-day basis through some very specific and intentional practices that happen every day. So it's, some people talk about it is it's, it's more of a mindset. It's a mindset that I have control of. It doesn't mean we don't have bad days. It doesn't mean, you know, I'm not sad. It doesn't mean I don't get mad or frustrated, but on a day-to-day basis, I make a choice on how I'm going to approach the day. And I know because of scientific research that there are activities, small activities I can do every day that help me stay balanced and adjusted and focused on positive things. What are my gratitudes? How am I journaling? Who am I talking to? How much time am I spending on Facebook and social media reading negative shit versus, you know, talking to people about joy and happiness and the good things in life and what am I grateful for? Am I doing my 15, 20 minutes of yoga every day? Am I doing my stretching? Am I getting my sleep? Those kinds of things are all daily practices that are scientifically proven to actually keep us more emotionally balanced. And so that's a lot of deep joy. The other thing about deep joy, so it's purposeful, it's purpose driven. So I know my purpose in life and then everything I do is built on that. I'm managing that joy intrinsically. And it's also built on three, maybe four big concepts, confidence, confidence in my skills, um, confidence in my, my presence, hopefulness for the future, resilience to be able to bounce back and learn and move forward and empathy for my fellow person, my fellow man. Right. So it's, it's the ability to have that real human connection and relationship with other people. And those are the elements that give me deep joy And then that allows me to have creativity and energy to actually live out whatever I choose to do. You mentioned the word purpose or the term purpose. If I am someone in my younger 20s and I don't know what my purpose is, what do you believe is the first step in walking the path of finding it or discovering it or maybe it's rediscovering it? Yeah, I don't think it's anything to be too concerned about if you're in your 20s. I think that is a point in life when you are still exploring lots of options. I think there are some people who find their purpose early, right? They're just, and they are on that passion. They've got it and they're moving. You look at somebody like, I might get her name not perfect, Greta Thunberg. 
Oh, yes. This, this is a young woman who has picked up a purpose and is she is all in, right? And there's other people like that. But for most of the young people in their 20s, that's pretty unusual. And it's okay, right? It's a time of life to explore different options, to try to find what do you enjoy? Where do your passions lie? Maybe you have some natural skills. Maybe you're still developing your skills. All of that is perfectly fine. I think the important part at that point in life is really to have a conscious choice that you're on an exploratory mission. Okay. Right? I'm not out here letting life come to me. I'm, I'm actually making some choices and checking out some things. Same thing with if you want to choose a light partner, right? I'm out here purposefully, intentionally looking for what makes sense for me. And if you land on a purpose at the ripe old age of 25, that's great. And if you don't, that's okay too. And if you land on one and you change it at the age of 35, that's okay too. It's not a once in a lifetime decision. You can choose to change. I love that, especially when you call it more of an exploratory process, because I feel that even I myself, there are times or there were times where I felt that, hey, I'm 21 and I got to get my shit together, <laughs> you know, but it's like, now I'm 30 years old. And I'm like, oh, like just reflecting back, it's, I think it's such an unrealistic expectation that I find. Exactly. I'll repeat what I think the science says. There, I'm sure somebody can argue with this. They say your brain doesn't really finish developing till you're about 28. Okay. So choosing your life purpose at 21 is probably a little premature. Yeah. If I quote the Oxford Dictionary definition of joy, which is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness, would it be fair to say that you would agree with this definition or would you expand on it or elaborate on it? Yeah, I think I might elaborate on it, like what I was talking about earlier. I think happiness is a little more superficial. Yes. And I think joy is a little bit deeper down. So then, in our society, do you feel that deep joy is something that human beings are increasingly losing in touch with? Mm. I think there are a lot of people who are losing touch with it. I think it's difficult. You know, it's like staying on a diet and staying healthy right? There's a okay. lot of people who know that that's what they ought to do. But it's hard. It's hard to stay motivated. It's hard to, to stay positive, especially in the days of the pandemic. There's a lot of noise and chatter and negativity on social media. Okay, it's very easy to get sucked into all of that. There are, however, at the same time, there is a huge number of people out there who are learning how to go after deep joy. And you can find them on the internet too, kind of like a mentor or a role model. So we have a blessing, of course, and a curse with the internet and social media, right? We have lots of information and we sometimes have way too much information. And I guess a lot of people, like how I was living, was, look, was living in the future and not the present to the point where I guess it would say it distracted me from finding, from realizing the true purpose in life or I was always stuck in, I have this goal, I want to live there, but because I'm living, I'm not living now, it's like you neglect a lot of very simple and basic things that make the, a lot of what life is. Right, right. It's the, it's the old adage of stop and smell the roses Yeah, is really what turned into the whole mindfulness movement, which is really about enjoy your present moment. You know, some people, they have kids and they are like, man, I can't wait till these kids grow up and get out of the house. <laughs> but you have this precious moment 
of watching a human being grow. And yes, there's all sorts of frustrations, I'm sure, with raising kids. But no matter whether it's kids or something else, you really want to take some time, enjoy the moment, note the markers and document the gratitudes. It's that mental presence. They, there's a, they talk about the flow state as well. And part of the flow state is being deep in that present moment okay. of feeling like time floats away. That requires you're here. You can't yes. be thinking about what you're going to do 10 years from now and be in a flow state. It, that, that just, it does not compute. That's so true. And I 100% agree with that. Now, this might be a little bit off topic. This common saying, and I'm personally finding this in my personal life and in a lot of general like social media quotes or like as social media influences, there's this common saying where it's, it's like, you just be happy. And I feel like it is like a saying that is commonly used and it's often used as an excuse out of certain situations or scenarios without much meaning and thought or thought put into it. Like you mentioned there's a reason why you don't use the term happiness instead instead and you replace it with joy. Now, I personally believe there should be certain boundaries with how we as human beings align with this saying and how we make our decisions based on it. To give you an example, let's say there's person A, let's name him Robert. And Robert's family is whatever makes Robert happy, we will be supportive. In my mind, where do you draw the boundaries to that? Because let's say if Robert happens to find a habit or an activity that is defined as wrong in our society let's say worst comes to worst that i can think of is pedophilia if pedophilia makes him feel happy like i think there should be a boundary line cut across that because i feel like that saying should not be used i get it we use the saying to be supportive right but i feel like we should be maybe returning or rewording how we're using this. You know what I mean? So what, in your perspective, where do we draw the line for boundaries? And do you feel like this is also a term that is commonly used or misinterpreted in this sense as well? Mm, there's a big loaded topic there, Aaron. <laughs> uh, okay, let's start with just be happy. Okay. Uh, and we'll get to the the other issue in a minute. So I would agree that I think this saying gets flipped around Okay. As don't, don't worry, you know, your, your, your troubles don't mean anything. Just be happy and smile. That's a Pollyannic, thin, and not very respectful statement mm-hmm. about the situation, the human condition of this person. I think that I'm going to say through coaching, but I don't think that's the only way to get there. But I think we have to respect the situation that each person is going through. But I do think that it can be easy to get pulled in by whatever negative things are happening in your life. So again, that's partly what my intention for this program of deep joy is, is to teach people how to learn to manage their life, no matter if it's got some negative stuff in it. So I think you can get to a point where you can have this sort of stable base of deep joy and still have the emotions that that ebb and flow every day. I love that answer because going back to it, I feel that I mentioned earlier, it's being used as an excuse to avoid the situation, right? But one of the biggest parts in life life is like, I I feel that we go through hardships and struggles and I believe everybody does. And every human being's hardships and struggles don't compare to one to another human being since we're all receptive in a different sense. And I feel like we are handed these hardships and struggles as an opportunity to learn and grow. And I feel like because of the saying, it kind of strays off that and it kind of gets to the point where we don't learn from the lesson. 
Right, right. We don't want to we don't want to set aside the opportunity to learn from what we're going through. Yes. To become a better human tomorrow, to give back to the world what we have to give in spite of what we've been given, in spite of the negative situation we've been put in. So that's also kind of where this growth mindset idea comes from where we are granted challenges, that's for sure, yes. but it's how we approach them, how we learn from them, how we grow and get better. Now, the other question you had was about the boundaries. Yes. So it's probably a bit more of a tricky topic, but I think in some ways it's, it's similar, right? We want, especially if this person is a loved one, a child, a parent, a spouse, whatever, right? We love this person as they are, as their potential for being great. They've fallen into some choice, drugs, alcohol, and anything else you want to name, out of some, something drove them there, right? And that's mm-hmm. really the thing that needs to be uncovered and solved. That's not something a coach does. That's something you have to get to a therapist, psychologist, somebody who's much, much more trained for those kinds of things. But we don't have to condone that behavior and we can still love the person. Ah, uh, okay. And I love how you explain how it, it goes deeper within because I feel that in society and even myself, there are times where we see, let's say, someone suffering from addiction, someone executing a certain action, and right off the bat, we may have, let's say, going back to Edward Dubono's hats, I might put the black hat on and be like, oh, I'm super judgmental. This person is such an a-hole, or, you know, or a prick, or like, he's so disrespectful, or, you know, the judgment goes on and on, but then we don't realize why things happen. Or like It's obviously, like you said, something stems in within, whether if it's trauma or you know, some source that results in certain actions or addictions like that, right? Yeah, that's why part of deep joy is to learn empathy. Yeah, we have to learn to look into somebody's experience and sort of not not exactly stand in their shoes, not get sucked into that situation, yes. but to to see what they're seeing in their shoes and to understand what's happening. Doesn't mean we can be the ones to solve it. Doesn't mean we should allow that whatever that behavior is, especially if it's harming us, we have to be super careful to draw that line, but we can still love them in that they can possibly at some point be who they were meant to be (laughs) and come back out of that. Now you mentioned empathy. I feel that this is also a topic where there's no one quick fix or what there's no one solution to help develop empathy. And personally, I think I've developed empathy at a young age because my grandma was able to show how much damage I did to the other kids. And she was able to relay it in a sense where I was able to understand. And that became a lesson for me to think, hey, whatever you do, whenever there's an action, there's always a consequence. And the consequence is not only to yourself, but in most cases, it'll be to other folks as well. Right? Like in the corporate world, we look at it as stakeholders, right? Yeah. Yeah. So... In Fien Chihi's mind, what is a very helpful way to help enhance empathy in a person? Do, do you think it may be through volunteering, maybe through reading books and looking through a different lens? Or like for Fien Chihi, what is your perspective? I think how we learn empathy differs by each of us. Okay. You know, like you, the way I was raised created a sense of empathy because of how my choices and and other people's choices were impacting the next person. And that was highlighted and shown to me and and reminded to me at a very, very young age. 
I think that in high school, especially doing volunteer kinds of things, especially getting outside of your cultural bubble and seeing how some other part of society lives helps that, but it's not always enough, right? There almost always needs to be a conversation Mm -hmm. to create the recognition to encourage active listening for what are you seeing? What are you hearing? What's, how are they making choices? It's sort of a, there's a learning part that has to occur. It's not just showing up at the food kitchen. It's having a conversation about what's happening there and why does it happen and why can't we solve it with easy solutions? And so there's that conversation of learning that I think needs to follow up. And every person is different because where they've come from before they showed up, you know, wherever they are in life, they've been through different things. So everybody, their next step is something different. Yes. So then you mentioned earlier too, another area of your expertise is the focus of agile. And I believe this is a common term stemmed from the software industry. And like it has expanded, involved overall now, especially in different industries. It's often adopted as a system to as a process to using the customer service relations, or it could be used in team building. So in your own words, then how do you or how would you define agile? And what are the differences between your definition of agile and how it is referred in the software industry? So agile is first and foremost, a way of thinking about how we work together to deliver products, services, values, whatever. So the way of thinking is essentially, we're going to deliver small chunks of value We're going to deliver them as early as we can, and we're going to watch how they land, and we're going to learn what worked or what didn't work so we can adjust it and do it again, right? We're going to adapt and adjust. So it's it's like testing, a series of continuous testing. Yeah, but not in a test environment, in the real world, right? So, So customers whether that means, you know, somebody you work side by side with or a a real customer of a product or, or who's ever using what you deliver, they need to see it in action. They need to feel it in action. They count value when it's something that they can actually use. Mm. And they cannot always predict how they will use it, which is part of why the old world of the software industry failed pretty badly at writing requirements because we sort of assumed customers could actually write them down and that they would stay static, which they couldn't write them down. They never stayed static and the world kept changing along the way. So having much shorter, smaller iterations and chunks of value allows us to avoid writing so much, so many pieces of paper that nobody ever read, but it also allows us to deliver that software or whatever the product is, deliver it in a small bit, see how it works. If it works great, fabulous, do some more. If it needs some tweaking, change it, do it again. So you look at even software that you often find on your phone. That phone software gets updated all the time, right? Because they're changing little bits of functionality as they watch how it gets used. They may not deploy it to all users because they only need a small set to see how are people using it? Is it working the way we thought? Or are they getting confused and, you know, something's not working right. So we'll, we'll tweak that part again. So that's part of Agile. Part of Agile is this way of thinking about iterations, delivery of value, learning based on how it lands. A huge part of Agile is about how we work together as humans. So it's much more about how teams are organized, how we have 
healthy, capable, articulate people in the team who are able to talk to each other in a healthy way and bring up issues and creative solutions and design options and make choices and do research all together as healthy human beings together in a nice, cohesive working team. And so that can apply to anything, right? HR people, finance people. Mm -hmm. It's really a lot about teamwork, self-organizing teams, the voice of each individual in the team, and how that then manifests itself in the product that we actually deliver. Ah, okay. So then how do you align or how does Agile align with deep joy? Good question. For me, people who are running and working and living and breathing in a status of deep joy become much better team members to deliver products at work with other humans. Okay. Because go back to the root, they're confident, they're hopeful, they're resilient, and they have empathy. Yes. And with those sort of skills or personality capabilities, they become really good team members. And from what it sounds like, it's like a byproduct, like excelling in that agile environment is a byproduct from finding or having deep joy then. It's enabled by deep joy. I don't know if I'd say it's a byproduct, but it's enabled by it. Yeah. 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 So there's a book, there's actually several books, but there's some, a lot of books about this culture of joy at work. So the idea is that we create a, a culture at work, which is strengthening the humans that are there in the system that is using leadership and coaching techniques as opposed to command and control. Okay. That is fostering great deep respect, is creating a shared story, is growing capabilities and growing confidence for people. So it's creating this culture of joy because we know that in that culture of joy, A, engagement goes up, which means people don't leave work. They don't quit. (laughs) And they're happy being there. And when they're happy being there, they make great team members and they produce great products. So So it's all interwoven. So how did you, or when did you make this distinction? When were you able to tie in, hey, like Deep Joy and Agile, they actually have such a powerful bond. The reason why I say this or ask this is because with Agile being a term, in my perspective, in the corporate world, you see Agile being hammered like or used in different ways, like you said, for team building. But I think that distinction is only made at the workplace, but then going back to our earlier conversation about looking deeper into why and then it's like deep the deep joy is like the why when did you make this distinction or when did you find out about this connection well yeah i first sort of ran into this concept of joy at work in 2017 okay and i read a book by a pretty famous book in the u.s a book called joy inc by a guy named richard sheridan Okay. And Richard and I are probably about the same age. It's the, his technical background is, is about the same as mine. And he runs a company now called Menlo Innovations in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So this first book of his called Joy Inc. was really about how did he bring joy into his workplace. And I was sort of captivated by it. Now, realize that my concept of deep joy has only been around for about 12 months. So that part's very new, but the yeah. seed was planted. And Richard has a new, newer book, not this year, but a couple of years ago called Chief Joy Officer. And again, it builds on what does it mean to create this culture of joy at work? There's other books around, not discounting those. But for me, that became, for Green Hat Coaching and Consulting, that became for me something that just sort of resonated in my heart. When I first started in management roles, which was about 
1997 or so. We were already in the days when the management, the hot management books that were on the bestseller list were already about growing great teams, building up leaders. We didn't really use the word coaching yet, but it was about really strengthening the team and growing great leaders from within the team. Okay. And so when this all came along now, it just sort of reconnected back to those original patterns, those original learnings. One of the books I read way back a long time ago was called The Leadership Wisdom of Jesus. Tiny little book, but that thing turned into a poster on my wall. It had like, I want to say 10 or 12 tenants in it. I don't know, kind of like the commandments, but they were really more about how do you lead people with empathy and with caring. And so these things kind of all filtered together in my brain. And now 20 years later, it's popping out as deep joy and the culture of joy. And I feel that even back in the 90s, I'm just making an assumption here based on what I've seen in the workplace. I would assume that whole management through empathy and management through caring I would assume it was not as that management styles was not as adopted. I would imagine with the status quo, it's all about you work hard, you train hard, but to an extent where it's like you're super strict and it's, it's very task focused. And it's like, if you can't complete this task, it's like, obviously you're not cut out for the job. And you know, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I worked at a a fairly forward thinking, very, very large corporation in the US. And so it was kind of a hot topic for large corporations at that point. But there were still for the last 20 years, there were still many, many corporations that ran on a command and control style of management. And that just didn't ever fit my personality. I worked as a project manager. I'm certified as a project manager, but I was never very good at command and control. (laughs) Just it just didn't suit me. It it always felt like I was wearing someone else's skin. Yeah, I totally agree with that too. I personally feel that a lot of folks that were, I guess, had the tutelage under that command and control environment, they became used to it because that was the whole environment. But I feel that with this whole empathy, leadership through empathy and, and leadership through caring and understanding, I feel like there's no ceiling or cap to it because it really enables us or anyone to you know maximize their potential. Now, we're about to wrap up this podcast here. And first, last three questions I have is, is there one book you recommend to our listeners that was most impactful to you and your development in becoming who you are today? Because I know you've listed a couple of books already, but is there one that was super impactful to you? I think the leadership wisdom of Jesus was one of them. One of them? Okay. Uh, one, another little, there was a lot of little tiny books in the late 90s. There was one called Leadership Jazz that was Jazz. also quite nice. And there was one that was called Flight of the Buffalo. And this was one of the early ones. It was, I think the subtitle was Learning to Let Employees Lead, something like that. And that was a really good one as well. Those were some of the early ones. Maybe the most recent one that's been pretty impactful is Simon Sinek's The, the Infinite Game. So Simon Sinek is most popular for the why, yes. start with why. But his most recent book about the infinite game aligns a lot to purpose and goal setting and how to set a different kind of goal and how to make a long-term impact in the world. So that one's been pretty impactful too. And that is a great book. Actually, I find a lot of all of the Simon Sinek books I've read, I've only read Start Your Why, I've done the exercises with Find Your Why, and The Infinite Game. Those three books are amazing, I find. Yeah. Next question I have is, what does being first generation mean to you? 
Now, I use the term first generation more metaphorically instead of literally, and I define first generation or someone as first generation as someone that's paved their own path and definition of success on their own terms. No matter the hardships or difficulties they've endured, they're doing things on their own, and everybody walks a certain path in life. Some may be similar, but no one walks the exact same path. So for me, that's that's how I define first generation. If I was to ask you, what does being first generation mean to you, or what does it take to be first generation? So I read a book about I don't know five seven years ago called Originals. Okay. And I can't remember the author's name. It'll come to me, but I think. You know, I'm kind of a weird person. My marriage is kind of traditionally speaking in America, it's kind of backwards. I'm the okay. one that works and my husband is a writer. Okay. So I'm the one that takes a paycheck and he doesn't. I wasn't the first in my family to go to college. My dad was highly highly educated. So I can't claim it that way, but you know, my mother thinks I'm nuts for moving to Portugal. <laughs> um so and there's probably some people I went to high school with who think it as well. You know, I spent 15 years at probably the biggest corporate job that I had, mm-hmm. and that for my mother was a great sign of success. And after that, I didn't. And I move around a lot. If I lose alignment to the company that I'm working with, I just walk. I'm, you know, I'm okay to walk. I'm okay to try something new. I've probably had more jobs than many people my age. I just, I change a lot because I like the new experience. I'm not afraid to change. I'm not afraid to learn and start over. But on some people's radar, that's kind of odd. Um, And it's, and it's, it doesn't, uh, you know, like I said, my mother thinks I'm nuts because, you know, oh, you quit that job or you moved again, or, you know, don't you care about having a house that's completely paid off in 30 years? No, not at all. (laughs) I'd rather go live in five cities in five years or five cities in 10 years and experience all these different locations. I'd rather meet new friends and make new friends. And so my roots go wide, but my roots don't go terribly deep. And that's okay with me. Yeah. So from what it sounds like, you have the curse of doing things out of the norm. Would you say that you are in your comfort zone when you're always moving? Or or was this a process where you pushed yourself out of your own comfort zone? Obviously, you pushed yourself out of your your mother's comfort zone by doing all this, right? But did you feel that because of you doing all this, you were already in your comfort zone? I won't say all the changes were easy. In yeah. fact, most of the changes weren't. Some of them were triggered by my choice and an exit, and some of them were not. And, you know, uh, many of them were, were painful and challenging and hard. So I, I wouldn't quite say I loved it. I okay. Mean, I'm okay with it and I choose it. But sometimes it comes at you and you don't make that choice or the timing's not quite what you'd hope. But that's sort of this resilience thing too, right? You, you have to be confident in your skills and resilient and know you can, you, you will bounce back. It might take a couple extra months. There, there might not be a paycheck for a couple of months, but, but I have the ability to be resilient and bounce back and learn and move forward. I love that approach. And Last question I have for you is, where can we find you on social media? Where can we find more details about Fiend Sheehy and your work online? Yeah, the one place to start is my website itself, which is greenhatcoaching.com. I'm also quite present on LinkedIn. 
And uh, sometimes I post articles one place or the other, or sometimes both, just because I have a fairly large network in LinkedIn. I, I don't know, I have a really, really, really old LinkedIn account from way back at the beginning. Uh, I'm also on Facebook because I'm old enough to to care about that uh, and because it's a good way to find clients and stay connected to people. And I am loosely, lightly on Instagram. You will not find me on Twitter. That is not my shtick. Okay. And I don't do Facebook stories or Instagram stories. I sort of, I have my limits, right? I'm just oh, yeah. like, <laughs> you got to manage your time somehow. So I understand. That's it. Okay. And for our listeners, I'll be posting Fiend's social media tags and websites down below in the episode descriptions and be sure to check them out. And Thine, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show and thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Aaron. They were great questions. I love chatting with you. It was awesome. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can follow us on Instagram and subscribe to us on YouTube at First Generation Podcast. For any questions, comments, and inquiries, please reach out to Aaron at firstgenerationspodcast.com. That is A-A-R-O-N at firstgenerationspodcast.com. Stay tuned for the next episode.